Hello, you are listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode is part of the Contemporary Thought series and was recorded on July 23, 2019 at the Centre d'études Maghrebina Tunis Semat. In this episode, Idris Jberi, visiting assistant professor in history at Bowdoin College, talks about Perspectives, Afaq, Drawing a Post-National Horizon, Tunisian Leftism and the Student Question, 1963-1979. So growing up, I always had a personal interest in generations, especially when hearing about our parent generations and how they frequently rioted on student campuses. And progressively, this became a way to talk about political regimes and political context. And as I launched into the history of North Africa, I was looking for episodes of these generations and their contribution to our history. And in fact, when approaching the history of Tunisia, I realized that student rights in the 60s and the 70s provided the trickiest challenge to Habib Bourguiba's long and absolute rule. In fact, the coalition that he led towards a modernized Tunisia after independence included the UGET, the Union Générale des Étudiants Tunisiens, including the skilled Tunisians that would feed the nascent Tunisian administration with civil servants who would then constitute the political elite. However, by the early 1970s, the country was rocked by several waves of student protests, and it appeared as if Bourguiba had lost the support of students. The disaffection of these educated youth posed a tricky challenge for his modernist project, which have relied heavily on this constituency. The student question refers to the continued demand for the autonomy of Uget from the regime and its ability to advocate for student interests in a context where most institutions had been made to align behind the regime by the 1960s. And in fact, those who have written about this question frequently point to very material reasons for why students began to oppose the regimes. They included the material conditions of life that had deteriorated on university campuses, the fact that Uget was simply unable to defend student interests because it was captured by uh, pro-regime leaders, and also anxiety over future economic and professional prospects. Because the social contract that the regime had struck with students is that if they accepted the neo-destour's authority, they would be guaranteed jobs and elite status. But the state of the economy in the 1960s didn't make that uh, possible anymore, raising concerns over unemployment. In fact, in 1972, John Entellis surveyed a group of university students, and the results of his uh, survey were extremely telling. He found that students no longer embraced the state's political stance. Instead, they were increasingly apolitical or, and this was quite uh, novel, they turned towards leftist ideological groups. Hence, as we look at this episode in the 1960s, the student question points to, on the one hand, the rise of Tunisian leftism and something about the Bourguibian modernist project and its paternalistic dimension as catalyst for these student riots. In looking deeper at this story, uh, we encounter the leftist movement, Perspective Tunisienne, or AFAQ, which made its appearance in the 60s on Tunisian university campuses to give voice and a new language to express student discontent. They really managed to strike a chord using the spirit of social rebellion of the 1960s and also the spread of the new left in the global south that we saw in other countries such as Senegal, Mexico, and so on. They were inspired by new Marxist interpretations, 
calling for direct action and railing against imperialism and all forms of domination, be they domestic, economic, racial, or also those of the old parties of the left, the Stalinian uh, communist parties. As I'm retelling this story and revisiting these episodes, I'd like to focus on how the student question displays the ideological transformations of post-independent Tunisia, and especially the efforts for a new post-national order to emerge. In fact, leftism was a privileged terrain to witness these changes. I argue that leftism was especially attractive for Tunisian students, not so much because of the ideology itself, but rather because it gave them the tools to confront Bourguiba's authoritarian paternalism and his refusal to tolerate a space for younger imaginations to contribute to the national project. Tunisian leftists in the 1960s onwards jumped on the opportunity to harness the energy of these students and their discontent, and that is, uh, I argue in the story, what drove the story of Tunisian uh, leftism. Perspective Tunisienne was founded in Paris in the mid-60s by a group of Tunisian university students who were strongly inspired by the climate in Paris and were railed by the Parisian Huget Cell's 1963 elections, which they tell was stolen by pro-regime students and the Tunisian embassy in Paris. They went on to publish an extremely rich journal containing Marxist, Maoist, uh, and, and Trotskyist analysis of the economy, society, and so on. They railed against the regime's insufficiently socialist policies. But for us, as Mohamed Salah Omri argues, they represent also an essential stage in the country's history and a radical expression for a more inclusive political system and social order. Therefore, studying, knowing this particular episode in the country's history is crucial to be able to establish a continuity uh, from the moment of independence, which is very well studied, to the present with the events of 2011 in the background. And as I went looking for sources and material on this particular group and their history, I found that right now in the field, there's a considerable level of interest in writing the history of the Arab left in the 1960s onwards. Also, we find that Tunisian historians for the past decades have been working to write the history of subaltern groups and occulted histories following the reopening of the public sphere. And the third impetus for this project is the fact that there's a remarkable number of publications, primary material that has resurfaced over the past decade. A lot of times memoirs from political prisoners were involved with the Tunisian left, but also the complete set of the journal, Perspective Tunisienne, Amel Tunisi, that provide a fascinating archive of this movement. Let me speak about the history of the Arab left and especially how it has grown over the past years, emphasizing the transnational connections between these movements. There's a particular attraction uh, that has been taking place over the past years to seek for connections between these movements, especially in the Arab Levant. However, I argue that this approach fails to properly grasp where these movements emerge from, and especially the country's social and political transformations, and in this case in Tunisia, how the student body was the main driver for these events. A couple of years ago, uh, in the International Journal of Middle East Studies, there was a fascinating article about the 1968 protests in Paris, and how they were connected or even caused the 1968 protest in Tunis. And uh, this uh, work emphasizes the importance of transnational connections and continued post-colonial ties, but I argue that instead this episode in Tunisian history needs to be read within its national context to properly how, understand how it represents a stage in the efforts to define what independent Tunisia would become.
And so I found inspiration in another article in the International Journal of Middle East Studies by Amy Kalander, working on Bourguiba's paternalism and the debate over women's miniskirts and men's haircuts in the same period as an illustration of this youth radicalism uh, that was bubbling and, and trying to appear and be shown and be taken into account in the 1960s. By telling a more grounded history of the Tunisian left, I hope to be more consistent with the portrayal of this experience by those who were, those Tunisians who were involved in the movements, first as students and later as leaders of the Perspective movement. And in fact, in 2008, one of the founding leaders, Nurdir Ben Khidr, as part of a roundtable organized by the uh, Abdjalil Tamimi Foundation, mentioned a quote that has since been very discussed and debated and created some polemic. He declared in 2008, we were the children of Bourguiba. This was a surprising statement considering the apparent scale of their opposition to him three decades prior. The scale of the repression that Bourguiba had ordered against his quote-unquote kids. What Ben Khidr meant, and many interviews have confirmed this to me, is that Tunisian leftists supported his commitment to modernity and progressive reforms, such as the state's commitment to public education, the reform of personal status law that guaranteed equality between men and women. Where they disagreed with him is that he did not recognize, according to them, the emergence of an autonomous subject among those who came of age after independence. Bourguiba and the members of the regime continuously considered them to be immature and lacking the necessary skills to be autonomous political actors. This explains why Perspective was able to tap with such success amongst the university students for its members, which it then promoted to become leaders of the organization. Now, in my story, in the way that I tell the story about the Tunisian left, I adopt what I call a generational framework. And I do so because as we dive deeper into the story, we can identify a very clear distinction between two groups that form the perspective movement. One generation I call the founders uh, from 1963 to 1968, roughly, who are the ones usually in Paris, very informed in terms of theory. And then a generation that emerges afterwards, after the important Tunis trials of 1968, a homegrown leadership that emerged on the scene and, and led the movement from 1968 to 1974, very roughly. They tended to emerge from domestic student ranks. And this student question really illustrates this passage from colonialism to independent statehood and how these two generations each attempted to take the national project forward. By adopting this generational framework and seeing how the ideology evolved uh, during this, uh, this decade from 1963 to 1974, I'm trying to respond to the prescription by Charles Tripp, who invites us to look at the politics of resistance as a genealogy, as a practice that gets passed down from one generation to another, from one moment of protest to another. And how we should focus on a variety of forms and traces, such as songs and slogans and memories and pamphlets that all attest to the development of a social rapport between rulers and ruled. In this discussion today, I'd like to retell the story as I've gathered it from a variety of sources that include memoirs from former perspectivists and uh, study a systematic inquiry into the journal from 1963 to 1970. And I'd like to first talk about the founding of the movement in Paris and in those initial years, influenced by new Marxist theories how this uh, movement lacked a certain focus until it adopted the student question as its main driver. Then I'd like to evoke 
the return of these initial perspectives to Tunisia in the 1960s and how they tried to capture the student body from the ground in, uh, in Tunisia and how at the time they had to challenge the Bourguibist reform of the university and gain the support and acquiescence of the student body. And then I evoke the two episodes of political repression. First, the Tunis trial of 1968, where the members of the first generation were arrested and the organization appeared to be dismantled, before then moving to the events of Korba, the UJET Congress in Korba in 1972, which was the moment we could identify the emergence of this new generation that shifted the ideological stance of perspective and were also arrested in greater numbers. And uh, a year or two afterwards, the perspective organization was uh, fragmented and dismantled, dismantled. But what we find at that point is that the regime arrested, bundled together leftists and put them in the same aisle of the Burj Rumi prison. And the fact that they were all sitting together highlighted the ideological differences, the stark differences between the first generation and the second generation, and invites us to consider the history of Tunisian leftism not as a single story, but rather a plural story shaped by the national experiences after independence and the different profiles of those who were members of Perspective. Finally, I'd like to conclude by drawing some conclusions over how we study contemporary North African history and especially what Perspective contributed to the country's national history. The Perspective movement emerged in Paris around 1963-1964. And according to the account of several of its founders, such as Abdelmajid Sharfi or uh, Nordi Badkhider, these students were disillusioned by uh, student, Tunisian student politics and instead branched out in this fascinating atmosphere in Paris with intellectual renewal on the left bank. And they often very quickly found themselves joining communist, Trotskyist, and Maoist cells that could match their radical aspirations. And after a few years of joining these small groups, they moved back to the UJET cells, hoping to make a difference in nationalist politics. And as they tell the story, they were confident of being able to win the congressional elections of 1963 and raise support amongst their friends. And, on the, and after several attempts by the pro-regime candidates on election day, there was a scuffle involving, according to them, members of the Tunisian embassy in Paris, and the boxes were simply confiscated and taken to Tunis to be counted between quotation marks, and unsurprisingly, all the pro-regime candidates won that particular elections. Sharfi, Benchider, and others decided to form an alternative organization. They called this discussion group the Groupe d'études et d'action socialiste tunisien, which would later be known more as Perspective owing to the name of their journal. This group of 20 to 50 supporters had various levels of commitment. They did not have a single ideological uh, line. And Gilbert Nakache, one of its uh, leaders, would later describe them as only sharing a common revolt against all forms of authority. And what we see really in those early years is that the movement lacked a clear mission statement despite their manifesto. And I could clearly see that in the publication in those early years from 1963 to 1965, more or less. The topics were wide-ranging and seemed to want to replicate the language and the style of leftist groups in the capital rather than cutting across or providing the basis for political mobilization back home. An example of this was a four-part study on the problems of agriculture in Tunisia that ran for the first four numbers, a highly technical, dry article that railed against the uh, problematic colonial legacy of French ownership of the best country's lands, regional imbalances in the country, unequal economic development, and the inadequacy of state policy and pricing 
of uh, the goods coming from the countryside. And so at no point can you imagine that anyone besides those in the group could really understand what was going on there. The group's publication also had a certain political interest and, and they wrote articles against the structure of power. They wrote in 1964 against the national bourgeoisie, applying Franz Fanon's ideas, attacking the Tunisian Communist Party, but also Habib Bourguiba, and speaking about the Bizerte crisis of 1961 and the officer's plot. It just seemed to be very confused and lacking a straight direction except for accusing the regime for failing its historic mission uh, to build true Destorian socialism. And so from these early years, the movement lacked, it appears lacked focus, tried to write within the parameters of the new European left, primarily as a group of intellectuals, and for that very reason was unlikely to draw a significant amount of support, nor would the regime be concerned by its uh, appearance. The turning point, I would say, came when they adopted students and the student question as its main area of focus. And that owes to a significant extent to Maoism in the capital and the opportunities that Maoism offered. Maoism was extremely popular in the French capital in the 1960s. I read Jeune Afrique in the 1960s, a journal that was led by Bashir Ben Yahmed, a Tunisian, who gave space to all these different ideological developments. And in 1967, the influential French intellectual André Malraux traveled to China where he interviewed the chairman Mao. And that interview uh, that was published on October 8, 1967, provides really a fascinating insight into the theory of Maoism that was so attractive to youth like those of Perspective. And I quote from Mao here, the only way to know if a young leader is truly revolutionary is to look if he is truly tied to the working and rural masses. The youth are not red at birth. They have not known the revolution. He later adds that in fact, in order to liberate a country, we need to create the circumstances such as liberating women in China, and Mao quotes the importance not just of washing machines, which is a quip against Western modernity, but rather to create the political circumstances of ideological uh, transformation. Mao insisted on profound changes of mindsets, adding that our customs must become different from those traditional customs and so these Maoist principles were heard and processed by Tunisian leftists as they became, began to frame their own revolutionary ideals. And in their own journal in 1967, one article titled uh, The Cultural Chinese Revolution is a highly revolutionary phenomenon, which indicated they espoused these different insights. Most importantly, Maoism gave Perspective the theoretical tools to integrate and mobilize students as the driver, thanks to their own revolutionary potential. Tunisia didn't have the type of workers that classic Marxist theory envisaged to lead uh, the revolution. And therefore, students were this group of people that the leftist intelligentsia could connect with, could uh, ideologically inculcate new principles and also could lead to kickstart a true revolutionary dynamic. And so at the end of this first period, the start of this experience when the journal still lacked a certain focus, by the end, by the mid-1960s, Perspective, thanks to Maoism, was able to capture uh, the imagination of, could start capturing the imagination of students in order to lead or to pursue this revolutionary potential. What is interesting, in 1964 and 1965, several founding members of the movement graduated and decided to return to Tunis. This included Sharfi and Ben Khidr. Thanks to their degrees, they took up skilled positions in the state, such as engineers, economists, academics, and so on. But also thanks to their Parisian uh, involvement, 
they saw themselves as more than just technocrats, but they had a certain sense of their own mission to lead change within the country. At the time, the country was undergoing rapid transformation under the leadership of Ahmed bin Salah, the former UGTT leader, who articulated a vision for Destorian socialism of which higher education reform and youth mobilization were significant components. In fact, Ben Salah's reforms were the application of Bourguiba's own views about the need to reform the, between quotation mark, mentality of the Tunisian people, to inculcate for them the principles of modernity that he seemed so wedded to. This topic has been highly covered in the historiography, but important to mention here is the role of state education. In 1958, the country passes an important education reform guaranteeing universal access, enshrining the principle of bilingual education as modeled on the Sadiqi College model. And in fact, a statistic that really surprised me the state's budget in education from 1963 to 1965 grew from 21.44% to 26.4% of the overall budget, which I think is a significant amount compared to other Arab countries to devote so much money to education. And the effects could be seen very clearly across the country and at the university as well. Many had described Tunisia at the, time, at the time as being a considerable work site, a chantier during the 1960s, changing at this blistering pace, managing to integrate scores of students from one year to another, hundreds if not thousands more of students joining the university, which had to change drastically to accommodate them. And so when Ahmed bin Salah was given, on top of his other portfolios, the education portfolio, he could rely on UJET as an organization that was under uh, the control of the central regime to not raise any kind of trouble until all those promises were delivered. So it seemed as if the country was undergoing a success story in the 1960s. However, as Amy Kalander explains, there was a considerable amount of malaise and discontent bubbling under the surface in the 1960s. It stemmed from very material concerns on campuses, pedagogical concerns, what was taught in the classrooms, but also this very student union, the absence of an autonomous, democratic, and fully functioning student union that could speak for the interests of this growing body of students. All of this is encapsulated in 1966 bus affair. As the story goes, two students clashed with a bus driver over unpaid ticket prices, but in fact, this grew and, and led to a number of uh, sources of discontent being expressed and a realization that things were not as rosy as we initially thought. And it was rather bubbling under the surface. It was around the time that Perspective had grown and established a presence on university campuses. And while the founders were no longer students, they managed to gain a foothold through uh, the door to the university in order to start recruiting students and changing collective perceptions as uh, they were following Maoist insights. From 1965 to 1968, two different branches of perspective developed, two different working groups, so to speak. One on Vietnam and anti-imperial foreign policy that contained Shadfi and has been described afterwards as the more Democrat-leaning side of the organization. The other was a self-styled Maoist group that served to recruit and mobilize university students. And it included Ben Khider and Nakash, who was a bit older, enjoyed the organization through his personal friendships. Nakash, in his many memoirs, has explored how they managed to gain a foothold, especially at the Law and Humanities faculty at the University of Tunis. Their main objective was to dismantle what they call the regime's framing of the student body, the encadrement, 
and in order to activate their revolutionary potential. They managed to recruit some students, such as Rizqallah, who was also one of these leading figures connecting them with the student body. One event they frequently cite that was fundamental in recruiting more members was when in February 1966 they invited the famous French agronomist of the third world, René Dumont, to give three talks. And in those personal memoirs, they described those three talks as the starting point for a rapid broadening of the prospective activities. In uh, the journal itself, commenting on, on this visit, I found this passage extremely telling. It says that most of the youth were attending for the first time such debates, and these conferences made them realize that they could do more than withstand speeches from conference talkers, but they too could discuss and challenge the views of these supposed masters. In fact, they did not refrain from doing so on the day. So the act of speaking back during a conference was a way to challenge traditional paternalism and authoritarianism that uh, dominated in the mindset of these students. In a similar vein, we know very well that Michel Foucault held a teaching post at the University of Tunis in the 1960s as part of a cooperation scheme and taught philosophy and left a considerable impact on his students, but also uh, supported the perspectivist at uh, certain points. In the absence of very precise numbers of, of uh, the student body, because remember, they, had, they were tolerated, but they had to maintain some kind of, of uh, hidden existence. So we don't know exactly how many students were in the movement itself. But we know uh, absolutely that their popularity was growing from personal testimonies. And we also know that Perspective fully embraced the student question and began to give it a clear space in their activities. And in fact, uh, as early as 1964, we see the journal gain a very clear framing of the student question. For example, it demanded, the authors denounced that students were in a precarious situation, uh, that their financial support could be withdrawn suddenly, and they made very concrete demands in those pages, including a fascinating demand for co-management which they argued was a great way for students to acquire more responsibilities. And they justified that by saying that these additional responsibilities would help these students towards the aim of becoming useful members of the national uh, effort. They wrote that it was a fascinating opportunity to gain life experience and balance the theoretical things they learned at the university with practical experience. Of course, none of these proposals were actually taken by the authorities. And so, on the eve of the big protest in 1968, in the period from 1963 all the way to, let's say, 1967, we see that university students began to flock towards perspective following the regime's incessant meddling in UGET affairs, number one, its refusal to allow any autonomy, but also, preventing students from voicing their concerns over issues they faced on campuses, including very material issues that could be resolved through a dialogue. The growing agitation could be associated with the wider climate of the 1960s radical years across the world, but I have sought to frame them mostly as a very localized issues, uh, set of issues that were given voice thanks to these foreign uh, ideologies such as Maoism. In 1968, the country came to know the Perspective movement as a whole. While the authorities were aware of student Marxists on campuses, uh, while the students themselves knew that they were there and some of them were very sympathetic, the country as a whole wasn't aware of the scale of discontent and the fact that they existed on campuses. And the story of the Tunis trials has been told many times and represents a landmark moment in, in the story. And so while I, I want to talk about it, I want to emphasize mostly its impact on the perspective movement and the student question as a whole. And especially because it allows us 
to see in the story how, thanks to the student body, perspective was able to persist. And therefore, we need to tell a story that fully creates a space uh, to account for them. In June 1967, in Tunis, the six, news of the Six Days War between the Arabs and Israel reached Tunis. The Arabs had been defeated in a few hours, and they sparked protests in downtown. On June 6, the first protest broke out downtown area, and they targeted buildings associated with, between quotation marks, complicit Western countries, such as the American and British embassies, and they later spread to Jewish neighborhoods. Bourguiba saw these riots as a personal challenge to his own authority because of the very specific stance that he had taken on the Palestine question. He felt personally embarrassed by the attacks from his US and UK partners, and most importantly, these riots for him confirmed that Tunisians were just too immature for politics. And so his response, that is quite interesting here, contained a dimension of carrot and stick. On the one hand, the authorities sought a, a actor to blame, and they turned towards the perspective movement, especially because of their own prior advocacy in terms of anti imperial uh, uh, discussion groups. And the events of 1967 became the moment when Bourguiba began to speak about the leftist threat, which they had previously downplayed in private. He gave very firm instructions to his Minister of Interior to, between quotation marks, deal with these kids once and for all. And on March 26th, the Interior Minister announced the arrest of 20 leftist agitators, which would later grow. One of these students that was arrested was Ahmed bin Jamet, a theology student known for his activism on university campuses. And later on, some uh, members of Perspective I interviewed said, well, he wasn't a leader. He just happened to be there and, and targeted. And yet, uh, he became the face of a mobilization strategy in the following weeks and months, a catalyst, especially after he received he, uh, he was sentenced to a heavy prison term that became an opportunity for Perspective to denounce the arbitrariness of the sentence. And in fact, nearly a year later, on March 10th, 1968, in the Hall of the Humanities Faculty in Tunis, about 100 students held a meeting to demand his liberation, which would spread beyond the halls of the university. Going forward, Bourguiba sought further to drive a wedge in the movement and he adopted even more virulent tones to denounce these subversive elements. And also, he attempted to ridicule them and delegitimize them, calling them, between quotation marks here, revolutionaries in rabbit's fur, freshly disembarked from the Latin quarters, these zealots of anarchy, attack attacking their fanaticism and their refusal to see the benefits which he constantly brought up about how much the country was changing and giving to its youth. And this is very indicative of his paternalistic reformist tone. That he, like a disappointed parent, had given everything to the students. Everything that they had to fight for under France, such as scholarships and the right to study whatever they wanted at university. And instead calling them to let go of those insanities on the left and join back joined the national effort once more. He spoke to them directly, reminding them of the spirit of sacrifice and enthusiasm and commitment, and also separating the bad leftists with the rest he called the hard workers and offered to guide these lost spirits back. The 1968 trial was an obviously politicized story that led to uh, the sentencing of a group of students and professors under sham trial, under sham excuses that include endangering the security of the state, to which these young perspectivists responded that all they were doing was discussing and all that was found when the police raided their uh, HQs was papers and pamphlets, not guns or anything else, and therefore that they had never planned to go to action and simply uh, were accused of crimes of opinion. That didn't lead to a lesser uh, jail sentence for these members of the perspective movement. And in conclusion, 
of this particular event in 1968, the Tunis trials jailed most of the leadership and appeared to spell the end of the Maoist goal of the leftist revolutionary takeover, which had defined the perspective movement in the 1960s. It was also very shocking that uh, the Bourguiba state could repress with such violence its own children. Uh, the experience they had of being jailed and tortured and beaten, uh, men and women, was particularly difficult to stomach. The authorities managed to further divide them by offering presidential pardons to those who repented, keeping in prisons only the most radical leaders, that include Nakash and Ben Khidr, who gained control over the remaining prisoner population and engaged in what they called self-critique by acknowledging that they had made mistakes, but nonetheless recognizing they had been swept away by youth contestation and, very, and were very proud of what they had done. And so, in 1970, after two years of terrible living conditions, the remaining prisoners were freed by presidential decree, and they were not immediately freed up to go back to their ordinary lives from before, but rather they were relocated across the country. They were kept separate and under constant regime surveillance. Nonetheless, as some explain in their memoirs, they still managed to remain in contact with each other through secret communications. Where the story becomes interesting and where we need to uh, read these developments in conjunction with Tunisian history is that in the following years, around the same time, Tunisia was caught in a major political storm at the top that may overshadow the developments of these leftist politics and student contestation. For starters, in 1969, after years of intra-regime intrigue, the super minister Ahmed Ben Salah was demoted, arrested, and accused of betraying the president's trust. Bourguiba was often sick at the time, suffering from health issues and frequently taken abroad for uh, treatment, which meant that in his absence, there's a space that opened up for different factions to compete, including the clan we call the Tunis liberals, led by people like Ahmed Mestiri, Bahay Ladram, who uh, were angling to become the next successor. However, in June 1970, a fit again, Bourguiba returns for medical treatment, and there's this wonderful cover from Jeune Afrique that titles Tunisia, un, un deuxième souffle, a second opportunity for Bourguiba after independence to regain full control after Ben Salah was pushed away and after the troubled 60s characterized by frequent uh, student riots. He names Hedi Nwira as his new prime minister, turns the page from the story in socialism and adopts liberal economic principles that start to deliver rapid results. And all the while we may think Tunisian leftism is done and dusted, student protests are over with because the main leaders are in jail. However, instead of ending the story here as a number of historical accounts do, uh, well, it seems as if the Tunisian left was undergoing their own transformations away from the limelight, learning the lessons of their more boisterous years of the 1960s and planning a new phase of their development. Which leads us to focusing on what I refer to as the homegrown generation of leftists around the events of the Korba Congress and its aftermath. In the early 70s, as I mentioned, the regime managed to gain hold over the public sphere again. And it seemed, it appeared as if student activism declined in volume and remained strictly restricted to university halls. Uh, the party created these, what it called, university cells to offer a supervision role, which is another way of saying that they controlled even more what was happening in the university. And Ujet was firmly under the control of the regime as usual. However, in 1972, uh, this apparent social peace was dashed by a sudden emergence of a new wave of student protest. 
However, in 1972, the issues ran deeper than the ones that sparked the protests of 1968, and they were led by a different cast of figures. And I'd like to focus on the affair that set the story up and the individuals that were involved, namely Ahmed bin Othman, a perspectivist from the first generation who was also influential in the second one, and his spouse, Simone Lelouch, the Tunisian Jew, who illustrate the arbitrariness of the regime against the student movement. But Othman was arrested in 1968, and he received a presidential pardon in 1970, but continued his activism in secret until April 21st, 1971, when a police raid went to his house and found that he had copies of uh, the Arabic version of their publication, La Mel Tunsi, leading to his arrest. Shortly afterwards, his wife was also arrested for leading a solidarity protest to liberate her husband. She received a two-year suspended jail time, but instead was expelled from Tunisia because she held a French passport as well. Building on this new, renewed agitation on campus, and just like 68, having a cause around which to uh, concentrate their demands, the, they, uh, the student body persisted with this climate of social agitation. And by the time that the next UGET Congress approached in August 1971, they threatened to launch a limitless strike if the syndicate did not agree to vote again on the decisions taken. At this time, protests began spreading outside of the university, and they managed to recruit high school students elsewhere. And they spread to other uh, localities around the country. Some accounts tell that chants of long live Bourguiba were uh, whistled down, and these protesters started to chant very subversive lines such as, the people is the true supreme combatant, equipped against Bourguiba, who was supposedly the greatest uh, combatant for securing independence. Protests and riots just spread in the following days that included high schoolers, and the authorities announced that they would close the humanities and law faculty for the rest of the year. The hundreds they arrested in the aftermath of these protests around the Korba Congress uh, were tried in what was referred to as the trial of Marxist-Leninists. And there are various amounts of numbers, 202, maybe more, and they, to those we should add also uh, those subsequent uh, protesters and perspectivists that were arrested in 1973 and 1974, all accused of belonging to the Perspective and Amal Tunsi movement. So who were these people that were arrested in those early 70s? Were they similar or different from the ones of the 1960s? There's this uh, one line from a report article which I particularly enjoy, uh, which declares how these students in the trial room were insolent and appeared ungrateful and then left the tribunal holding their fists held very high, even after being sentenced to jail time. Well, the nature of this generation of activists is a fascinating part of the story here. And I claim that by jailing the first group in 1968, the leftist experience didn't end. Instead, it created an opening for students to be propelled to these leadership positions. They were more, these new leaders were shaped more by activism and mobilization rather than theory and Marxist discussion groups. They were less intellectuals and more savvy in the arts of mobilization, such as Ahmed bin Othman, who was younger in the 1960s, but grew in the movement after his liberation in 1970 and attracted other figures, which include Fatih bin Haj Yahya, who was part of the second generation, in his memoirs Al-Habs Kadhab, published in 2009, explores his journey from student activism in the 1970s to joining the Perspective organization. And finally, he concludes his short memoir to his experience of torture and life in prison. And he really, in his uh, memoirs, explores how his journey didn't start with discussion groups at the university, but instead, he was just a high school student with his friend when he was approached by uh, older university students in 1968 who asked him if he was interested in joining 
uh, some strikes against the 1968 protest. He writes that he was always keen to be involved in, in political action, that he grew up with admiration for those um, students who could stand up on a table and speak for an hour about Marxism, and that he always wanted to become like them because of their heroic aura. They looked like the stars who could smart, talk very smartly until one day he became one of them without realizing that, in fact, they didn't really know what they were talking about. They just had these lines that they were repeating again and again. Hajj Yahya describes the general atmosphere of radicalism at the university. And here again is where we can connect this to the general social climate in Tunisia, but also connect it with other social contexts elsewhere. He explores how uh, they were all fascinated by the legend of the Che, the Vietnam War, the Palestinian struggle in the 1970s, rejecting the politics of these influential political parties. And what they brought to the table to Tunisian leftism as I mentioned before, was their ability to organize, to distribute leaflets overnight, and to craft slogans that really appeal to local uh, concerns, oftentimes written in Derija rather than French, and that gained them a strong base of support with the workers' movement rather than simply at the university. And also, he explores how in the 1960s, joining a movement like Perspective that had gender mixity was a great way for them to meet young women. And so the example of Ben Yahya, as many others would, shows that the new members were very different from the previous, the first generation. They were influenced by other ideological strands, including Arab leftism, the connection with the transnational Arab left, and just as the first generation had done, they also represent the contradiction of a Bourguibist Tunisia that refused to integrate the views of the younger generations and to define the national project as such. After the uh, Korba protests and the first wave of political trials, the authorities decided to completely dismantle the leftist and student movements. The police arrested massively amongst their ranks, carried out wave after wave of political trials, injected Islamist student groups at university to harass leftists, and uh, Ben Yahya and others explain how they, for a time, fled the country, joined Palestinian guerrillas in, in Lebanon, started to train with the prospect one day of coming back and leading a guerrillero uh, revolutionary takeover inspired by the Che and Cuba and so on. This was a very short-lived uh, aspiration and effort. In fact, there's a, a story that uh, Ferjani tells in his own memoirs about how ill-prepared they were and how they were caught by silly mistakes. And most of them were arrested and jailed in 1972 to 1975. And at that point, they were all sent in the Burj Rumi prison to serve their sentences, both the remaining members of the first generation who were still on the regime's radar, such as Gilbert Nakash, and the younger generations, the more uh, hot-headed ones, and this created a singular situation as both generations oftentimes got to meet for the first time in this space made possible by the repressive state. Many of the younger militants explained that they were extremely excited to meet this veteran they called Papi very affectionately, Gilbert Nakash, who in turn seemed less than impressed by the new turn of this movement, especially the Arab uh, turn, the more violent turn, whereas they had imagined a more intellectual and higher level uh, state of discussion. The memoirs are also filled with stories of camaraderie and how they played football games, and, but also how within the three rooms where they were held, they continued with their political organization, with different clans uh, persisting, and how they passed each other coded messages to towards their ultimate coming out of prison and how they would continue the struggle. And so in conclusion at that point, the Tunisian leftist movement was fragmented beyond uh, measure, partly because of the repression of the state, partly because of the choices and actions of 
uh, those leaders themselves. But what we can say for sure is that any history of Tunisian leftism needs to have at its heart the role of the student body, not just an issue that was taken to mobilize and to uh, drive these energies forward, but also as a body of leaders that the Tunisian left could always rely upon with their experiences. And in turn, these different generations changed the identity and the policy of Tunisian leftism going forward. According to several Tunisian historians, including Michel Ayari and, and, uh, and others, the trials of the mid-70s and the eruption of Islamist group on university campuses spelled the end of the Tunisian left movement. But as a concluding note, I have sought to tell a story where the history of this movement and its connection with the student body is not simply a way to talk about the limitations of the state's reform. It was not just motivated by anxieties over material things such as jobs or how nice the campus was. Instead, there was something deeper at play which is the emergence of a political consciousness and a desire to contribute to the nation state amongst the student body. And that as a second concluding point, invites us to rethink the way we tell the history of the Arab left nowadays, to rethink the importance we afford to the transnational narrative, and especially the importance of the Parisian renewal of Marxist theory or the May 1968 events. Instead, we're reminded that uh, many of these members themselves admitted that they were not truly versed in Marxist theory beyond a few quotes. And therefore, we need to recognize on the one hand the importance of transnational influences, such as the global climate of the 1960s, and how uh, these leftists oftentimes came from Paris or traveled to Beirut to acquire some, uh, some training, and how they were all shaped by a fight against the oppression of daily life. However, I want to emphasize the importance of reframing it primarily as a grounded story of national development. The student body allows us to do this and offers us a more satisfying reading of the Tunisian left as a social movement that attempted to go beyond the limits of decolonization and really struck a chord with the Tunisian student body. Finally, what has been the contribution of Perspective Afaq to contemporary Maghribi intellectual history? As Mohamed Salah Omri writes, uh, Perspective represents an essential stage in the country's history for their efforts to build a strong citizenship and civil society. By holding the state accountable to its own self-declared aims, and in the past years, Tunisia has sought to better understand the areas of its own history which have not been covered or been silenced for the past years and reconcile themselves with their own parents' generation or grandparents' generations, as I did myself. They have taken hold of their own historiography and a number of organizations have joined the conversation themselves, such as Perspective at 50, organizing colloquia and publications and informing the younger generations of what uh, the earlier ones have been carried out, such as Nashaz, or posts on social media. And all this offers a very optimistic horizon for this important legacy to be explored, understood, and integrated to the way Tunisians think about their own history. Their contribution, I would finish with, goes beyond simply standing up to authoritarianism, but rather they illustrate a crucial process of nation building in Tunisia. How the children of independence, the perspectivists and the student body, sought to take the national project to the next level from the nationalist iteration of the founders. And one could say that that's what Bourguiba did in 1934. He took the old bourgeois demand for more political rights from France and conceptualized and convinced the audience that in fact Tunisians deserve to be independent. And we could say that the, similarly, the perspectivists 
with the children of Bourguiba's independence who wanted to go beyond simply political independence and the social economic framework that France had drawn for the previous 50 years or 70 years of colonialism and try to conceptualize of what Tunisia should look like in the post-national environment. The regime's failure was probably its inability to recognize this thirst, these creative imaginations, and offer ways to integrate it to the Tunisian story. Thank you for listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website, www.themagrebpodcast.com, as well as on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, like our Facebook page, Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts, subscribe to the CIMAT newsletter at www.cimatmagreb.org, or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghreb Studies. See you soon for a new episode.